Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths. And here's the thing. We live in a society where people often talk about taking certain steps in their lives, but they never do because they're either afraid to lose or they are otherwise held back by fear of overcoming whatever perceived obstacles are part of their life. We all do it. We do it daily a lot of the times. So it's about understanding the price of success and the process of finding meaning in your own life. And my guest today, Jordan Matthews, joins us to share how people can turn failure into success. Now, a bit about him before we get going here. He is a business trial lawyer and litigation partner since 2018 with broad experience in the entertainment industry and the business community. He currently handles matters throughout the country and has litigated or otherwise been involved with matters pending in California, Nevada, and Massachusetts before the Ninth Circuit Court of the United States Court of Appeals, Courts of Appeals, and is involved in litigation covered by the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, CNN, and other media outlets. He also represents a wide range of clients including producers, directors, production companies, athletes, entrepreneurs, and C-level individuals in the entertainment industry and the business sector. Here's why we're here. He wrote his upcoming book, Failure, When You Have Nothing, You Have Everything, because his experiences over the past 19 years are in his I was, as he puts it, his most valuable asset. And I'm looking forward to receiving my advanced reader copies soon. Jordan, good morning. Welcome to your partner in Success Radio. Good morning, Denise, and thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I read, you know, our good friend um, Devin Blaine sent your information to me and went, okay, I have to talk with him. Because <laughs> the thing is, you're right. I mean, we often just step on our own feet because of perceived failures. They say, oh, I can't do that. It's going to fail. Well, how do you know? Have you tried? So yep. we're going to talk about that. But it's, it's a mindset, I think. But anyway, before we get I'm going exactly. here, yeah, tell people a bit about yourself, and then I've got questions. And I can't wait to read your book. Sure. No, I, I, I appreciate that. And by the way, you have, like, the absolute <laughs> perfect voice for, uh, for radio. Um, so oh, it's, thank it's, you. It's like sort of, Soothing setup. Um, you know, there's a lot to go into, and you know, I had a conversation with uh, with a friend uh, last night. We were talking about, you know, a lot of things. Um, it it you really touched on a, a specific point, and it is a mindset. But there's a very different thing between the theory of it and actually practicing it. Um, a lot of this. You know, I think we'll go into detail in the context of our overall conversation, but really is informed uh, because I have a mother who's, a, you know, an incredible entrepreneur who, um, you know, I was able to, through osmosis, learn so much from in terms of her characteristics. She would build herself to the top companies and she would get thrown out of companies. She would sleep on people's floors. She would continually, you know, reinvest. I saw her go through a process 
of, you know, tremendous resilience. And so on a subconscious level, that's just what I witnessed growing up. And I was very fortunate to see that. That was just normal to me in terms of understanding what a process was. It wasn't about finding a job and having security. It wasn't about, you know, finding a job just to pay the bills or to do what you were supposed to do. Of course, we all have responsibilities, but it was about really pursuing something that actually had an effect. And I think that that's, you know, a bigger part of that. And, and when you have a, a purpose, when you have a, a, you know, she actually, I was having a conversation with her the other day and she said, you know, your why. And I constantly remember actually hearing that, you know, when you have that purpose, when everything comes up every single day that is a problem, because that's inevitably what life is all about, it is, it is problems. I mean, that's just what it is, and it's how you perceive it. Do you perceive it as though it's an obstacle and you're not going to do anything, or do you perceive it as though this is just a normal process of life, and I'm going to use this as an opportunity to overcome a challenge and become stronger as a result of it? So there was so much that I, you know, have continually learned from, from that, but then I also, um, you know, a lot of it was informed. Uh, 19 years ago, so I'm 37, uh, when I was 19, uh, for a couple years prior to becoming 19, so about 16, 17, 18, 19, my father was, a, he was an incredible, uh, incredible person, um, but he also struggled with alcoholism. And I had a lot of experiences really to cut to the, to the point of, of, I think, where we'll, we'll jump into a lot of different things. I was very used to performing and meaning uh, doing really well, putting in the work, wanting to get, you know, if I was in school, wanting to get an A or whatever, you know, it was. But I was not comfortable losing. I was not comfortable pushing past a certain uh, line, so to speak. And he died about two and a half weeks after I went to college. Uh, I had a lot of very traumatic experiences with him. He was in and out of jail. You know, I, I, you know, he was living, you know, at someone's house. He was a, you know, he was a crack addict. Uh, I was watching him detox. I would sit with him for hours while he would detox for six hours at a time and watching him throw up and, and going to his house. And um, I had some really, you know, very traumatic experiences with him. And that, you know, everyone has their own story. But when I lost him, there was a forced loss for lack of a better term, where there was just a realization that I lost something I was never going to get back. And it took a lot of time. It took a lot of work. But the, the beauty of that was that when I applied that through choice in life, you know, if I walk into a room, I wasn't concerned about losing a deal or going bankrupt or, you know, losing a relationship or anything like that. Obviously, you want to apply empathy and have good relationships with people, but it gave me an edge where I was confident and knowing that I didn't necessarily need something. I didn't, I wasn't attached to anything, which gave me a lot more freedom to, you know, take chances and take the risk that I needed to do and fail. And I had tremendous failures and, and huge crushing losses along the way but I also had a feeling that compelled me to just keep moving no matter what. You talk, you and I had a terrific uh, pre-interview, 
And I remember saying to you, I wish we had recorded this. We could have just called this the podcast. And that happens a lot, by the way. But you talk a lot, and I haven't heard you say before, fourth loss. And I wrote that down because, boy, I've been having a lot of those in my life lately. We all are. But it seems like they just kind of go bang, bang, bang. And you're like, what's next? Oh, my God. And that's been my life recently. But you also talk to me during the pre-interview about forced personal growth and I'm assuming possibly incorrecting incorrectly that those two are joined together in some way you can't have one without the other yeah absolutely, yeah, absolutely. so, so I, I I was thinking actually this morning I was uh, you know taking a shower before uh, coming here as one should uh, so uh, I but I was thinking I had this moment and I take I take normal showers, but I actually take – I had a conversation with, with this uh, a good friend of mine last night uh, you know, about this. I take cold showers, um, you know, every day, and I do um, what are called ice plunges or cold plunges. Wim Hof. And there's, there's that, follow, are we talking about Wim Hof? You, you know, it's interesting, you know, it's interesting because, because I, I had to categorize it with that language. Um, it's, it's a little bit different, um, I guess, to the extent that I, I just do it my own way. But right. that's exactly but that's the concept. With, with yeah, I do, I do a lot of the same thing. I will t- actually take – listen, I, my inspiration comes to me in the shower, and I've talked about this on my podcast before, but I will take a shower that, honest to goodness, is hot enough to steam broccoli. Seriously, you could probably – you know, cook in my bathroom when yeah, it's all done. Yeah. But at the end of it, when I'm saying, okay, I need to get out of here, I will ratchet mm-hmm. it down until I it's really, really, really cold. Yep. And I don't know yep. why I do that, but it's very helpful to me. But I also in I'm also during all of this scribbling on my my shower, my shower walls with bathtub crayons, because you would not mm-hmm. believe the amount of inspiration. Or I call them God winks that just drop into my head, and I'm like, oh, I can't get out of here to write yep. that down. I'm going to write it on the wall. Yep, happened to me this morning. So I didn't. Oh, I, didn't I, I like the idea of on the wall. But um, it, it what came to me this morning, and it was it's an obvious thing, uh, at least when it clicked, was it was basically that I don't know the exact verbiage, but basically you you have to be seeking failure. You, and actually, I actually have had a couple of experiences recently. Um, it's interesting because I, so I, I, the past couple of years that, you know, every, everyone's got their own stuff going on, but, but after rebuilding, I was hitting, you know, a, a very solid point. But what's interesting about that is, as though I was getting, although I was getting to a solid point, it kind of dulled me in one sense. And what I mean by that is that, I I was getting a little bit like, okay, well, I'm starting to be mindful of what I'm concerned about. I don't want to lose this, or I've worked really hard for this. I don't want to let go of this. And do I have to sort of live with these different things uh, to to keep what I've worked for? And and that's a reality that, you know, we have to sort of live with at times. But I had a couple experiences that really actually began earlier this year where I had these crushing almost like tsunami waves, very serious things happened that resulted in, in huge losses. And 
and it was very painful no matter what, you know, I've gone through previously. But the beauty of it is that I'm almost at this point looking for those traumatic losses because the other side of it is an incredible level of mental strength where I realized at one point I got to the point, it was only maybe about a week or two ago where I said, you know what? I don't need anyone. I don't need any specific person. I don't need anyone to do anything in particular. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I know my capabilities. And so to your point, in terms of you asked a question about like, uh, you know, failure and forced growth, it, it is actually those losses that I think sharpen you so much if you have developed a physiology that can handle that process. And that's what really makes you, I think, incredibly sharp. I agree with you. I mean, if, listen, I don't know about you. I'm an entrepreneur. You are as well. I mean, I know you work with a a law company, but you're also an entrepreneur. We wake up in the morning. We go to bed at night knowing that we're going to be stomping out fires all day long. That's just life. So you're either prepared to do it or you're not. Yep, absolutely. Um, and so, actually, you know, so there's, there's one interesting thing. I was, I was again, I was talking about the story, but I think this is like a really, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a traumatic story, but it's, it's real. Um, and it's, it's informed a lot. I think there's a lot of layers that sort of come into it. And it's helped me because in business, no matter what I'm facing in law, no matter what I'm facing, no matter what's on the line, um, I know that whatever I'm facing will not really come as close to some of the visceral experiences that I've had. Um, it starts really with, you know, my father. And, and, and so I, I really want to talk, um, right. I, I just, some thoughts I have about that where, you know, he, again, when he was probably thinking his, his late forties, early fifties, he passed away when he was about I think, 51 or 52. He was pretty young. Um, it might've been 53, but it was two, so it's 2003, 19 years ago. And, um, in 2001, he was going through a second divorce with my stepmother and I lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's where I grew up. I was, I think in 11th grade. So I think I was like 17 years old at the time. And he had relapsed. Uh, my parents had divorced when I was six months old and, um, he, but he was going through I mean, he was a very soft guy. You know, I couldn't imagine him hurting a, a, a fly. But, you know, he was obviously not going through a great situation with his marriage. And, and uh, you know, I can't really speak to the full details, but she was accusing him of, of domestic violence and, and, and calling the cops on him and throwing him in jail. And this happened a few times. Um, I can't really speak to the authenticity of it, but he had relapsed. And the point, the reason I... I say this is that he was supposed to go to rehab and uh, he was supposed to actually go to an outpatient facility where he was going to stay for, you know, weeks, a a month or more or whatever, and actually really go through what needed to happen. And then I think, and and his birthday is on December 23rd. So it's right before Christmas. This was, um, you know, in December time. And then some, I guess, right before he was about to be released, he, uh, you know, I, I heard of a change of plans and he was going to go to a more local facility. I don't know if it was going to be outpatient or inpatient or something like that. But I was like, as long as you're going to go somewhere, okay. And um, and then, of course, 
like any good addict, uh, I guess some way, shape or form, he talked, <clears throat> he talked himself out of it. And, um, I found out that his, his, uh, his wife at the time, uh, my stepmother was basically going to go visit her family, uh, while my father was going to stay at their house for the holidays by himself. So I called him on the morning of December 23rd, this is 2001, <clears throat> this is 21 years ago. And I told him I was going to stop by and, you know, give him a present for his birthday. My, my mother would, you know, I was a teenager. She, would, she knew him, so she would get, you know, a sweater for him uh, that he liked. She kind of knew what his taste was and all that stuff, and I, I would give him the present. And so it's, you know, it's wintertime, and it's East Coast and uh, or Midwest, whatever you want to call it. <clears throat> and um, so it's around a little after five and it's starting to get dark. It's cold. And I drive over to his house. My mother at the time I had lived with her um, for the first 14 years of, of my life with her. We lived in a pretty modest, uh, you know, thousand square foot sort of uh, duplex. Uh, and she worked really hard and then bought like the home of her dreams. And, and so we had moved and I, I drove over to my father's house. It was about five minutes away. And he lived in what's called a, um, called like a Midwestern, um, I can't remember the, the, the actual phrase of it, but it's basically, um, it's one house that's basically kind of split in two. And there was like three levels. Uh, oh, split level three, house. Levels, levels. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess I, that I that's, guess that that's the, proper, the terminology. proper terminology. I think so. My brother had one like that. And he always called yeah. it a split yeah. level. Yeah, split level, or or it might even be called a Midwestern duplex, or or something like that. But but you know, so he you know, it was a modest, it was fine, uh, it was a fine, comfortable neighborhood, I guess. You know, he was he was sort of just a normal sort of middle class arrangement, um, fine. But the point is, really, I drove over to the house and I pulled up, and I remember seeing there's the, you know there's a flight of like 15 stairs going up uh the first cement stairs going up to sort of this this uh sort of even area there's a, a lawn that went down sloped down and then there's a little walkway and like four or five stairs that go up to this porch to the house the front door and i saw the front door was ajar and i saw on the second floor there was a light on and i called him and he would not pick up and I called again, and he would not pick up. And I saw that the door was ajar, and I just did not feel comfortable going in. So I left. And, you know, I, I'd done very well earlier on in my life. I was a valedictorian, but I was going through a lot of, you know, my after-school activity was largely taking care of him uh, <clears throat> in some very, you know, different circumstances than they were what they were. Uh, so I wasn't around the best people at the time, but I, I drove to a friend's house. I was getting a lot of life experience, um, was educating. Sounds outside, like outside. It. So it sounds like it. Yeah, it, it was, you know, so it, which you learn a lot, you know, you know, they, they talk a lot about how, in, you know, some of the most successful people, whatever you quantify as success, it's really, you know, emotional intelligence or EQ as opposed to IQ. Um, but nevertheless, um, so I went to this friend's house. It was about five minutes away and I went into his house. I was there for five or 10 minutes and my phone rings 
and it's my my dad, it's my father. And I pick up, and he sounds really groggy. Uh, and he he told me that he had passed uh, he had passed out. He had fallen asleep. He was taking a nap or something. That's what he said. And I, you know, I remember picking up that call. I was very even keeled. I was very cold. You know, I was used to having a lot of trauma at that time. So I was just, but I didn't know how to deal with it or process it. So at that point, I was just holding it in. Um, But on the surface, I was just, you know, I probably had almost developed a bit of a sociopathic, just like I could handle a very traumatic experience. And on the surface, I wouldn't, I wouldn't shake. You know, I would just be very normal uh, because of what I was being exposed to. And I don't think that my sensory system knew how to really deal with it. But so that's perfectly oh. natural. I mean, when, you're, when yeah. you put up yeah. with this kind of thing over and over and over again, just as a protectionary device, you have to have a system that says, I'm not going to freak out. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to stomp my feet. It is what it is. I'll deal with the fallout as best I can. But getting yeah. hysterical yeah, I, all the time, that's bad for you and everybody around you. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and and I think actually, you know, I'll, I'll go back to the cold shower thing later, but, you know, I think that shock became something that became, you know, a, a growth and therapeutic and, and, a, and a, you know, a sort of takeaway that I learned from a lot of these things. But I, so I took the call and I asked him if he wanted me to come back and he said, yes. And I said, okay. And I, you know, I intuitively felt there was something uh, that was just not good. And so I drove over to his house, you know, three, five minutes and I pull up and as I pulled up, you know, he was standing outside, but it was dark. And he was in a bathrobe and he was smoking a cigarette. And I um, got out of my car, popped the trunk, got the present, and I started walking up the stairs. And I get to the top of the first, whatever it is, 12, 15 stairs, and he's still standing there. So I, I start walking. I start getting up to the porch. And then right as I hit the, the, the top of the porch, um, the top step and walk on the porch, and I take a step in, I, uh, I, he kind of steps into the light and I look at him and he was covered head to toe in blood. And I looked at him and my first thought was pretty irrational. I was just like, I thought split second, like who beat the hell out of you in jail? You know? And then I thought immediately, I'm like, there's no way they would release you like that. And I looked at him and I just, I was like, what, what the hell happened to you? And he looked at me very deadpan, like, what? And he didn't know? Did, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. was so, I don't know. Because, because on a rational level, I would think to myself, how could you not know? But then you get to the place where you realize that, you know, he was in a completely different state of mind. And he oh, was drinking gosh. probably about a liter of hard liquor every single day. Um, so I, and, but yet it, how could you, I think he was in denial. I think it was, I think it was one of those things, which is so weird because it was so obvious, 
but he wa- he starts walking into the house and he starts sauntering left and right, you know, all back and forth. And he sits down in a chair and I sit down on the couch across from him and I look at him and I just said, you've been drinking. And he says, no. And I was like, okay, obviously you have. So I, well, I mean, I get up and I go throughout the house. I go into the kitchen. There was, it, there was blood everywhere because uh, he had basically had a scalp wound and, and, you know, the scalp was very thin and cracked it open, I guess. And there was blood everywhere. And um, so I, it was like a, it was like a murder scene. I mean, you, it, there was just blood everywhere in the kitchen on the carpets. I went upstairs in the den where I'd seen the light previously on the second floor. And that was, you know, just all that stuff. And then I realized I'm looking, I'm looking to try to clean this up and I'm realizing I can't touch him because when my parents were six months old or when I was six months old, my, and my parents were divorced, he, you know, got intoxicated and he left and he was on a motorcycle and he got in an accident and about an hour. So about an hour after he left, he got life flighted in and, um, he had a blood transfusion. He almost lost his leg, but they didn't, they didn't screen. The For AIDS. Anyway. Yeah. Well, he, well, he, he didn't have AIDS. He didn't have AIDS. Hepatitis, hepatitis C. C. So, so I realized I, I couldn't realized touch I couldn't him. Touch. And I couldn't find any gloves. So I looked at him and I said, okay, I will, you know, I'm going to go to my mother's house. I will be back in 20 minutes. And I said, do not close the door. And so I left and I drove over to my mother's house and I, I got there. She was, you know, on conference calls and doing business. And it was right before the holiday. She didn't take a break and it was in the evening and she's running her business and she's a single mom and doing whatever she has to do to, you know, handle what she has to handle and take care of me. And, and she, I think she knew I was, I was going through things, but, but I was very good at that point of just containing it. Um, and so I don't think she was any the wiser. You know, I think I told her stories later on uh, where she's been kind of like, I, she didn't know, um, you know, because no one really knew I didn't talk about it. And um, so I went and I got these gloves. I, I went into the kitchen. She was on a conference call. I went under the sink, got these yellow gloves, walked out of the house, drove back to my father's house, and the door was locked. Oh, and man. so I was just left there to say, okay, you know, what if, you know, or what, well, I don't know. And so there were a lot of experiences like that. Um, but what we talked about was, and the sort of follow-up call um, was he had two conversations with me right before I left for college, you know, sort of the gold out of these things. And the, the first conversation I remember I was with him in his house and he said to me, um, what do you want to do? With, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And at that time, I was going to Ohio State. I was going to leave and go to Ohio State, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But if you had asked anyone three years earlier where I thought I was going to go, it would have been, I was going to go to Harvard or, or whatever, which thankfully I didn't. You know, I probably would have been miserable. I would have been in, you know, just a performance mode trying to make everyone else happy. Um, but I was really going in a very different direction and off course because of the stuff that was really a distraction in terms of what I was dealing with with him or it seemed like a distraction at the time but he asked me this question not in a space of any judgment he was really just 
I think he saw that I was going in a different direction, uh, but he knew what he believed my potential to be. And basically, so I told him at the time I, I said, I remember telling him, I said, I was thinking of owning a media company or a magazine company or something. And he kind of like paused and he thought about it. And, you know, there was just kind of a, I think a reflection on that. <clears throat> and then a couple weeks later, I had this conversation with him where he told me, you know, when you, when you leave for college, your life is going to change and you, uh, you know, you're going to have get into, you know, meet new friends, get into relationships. You're going to have a new life, which is obviously what happens with most people and all that stuff. And, and at that time, most people in our family, aside from my mother and his older sister, um, had really deserted him. I was the one really taking care of him every day. And so he told me that I was going to, you know, have a new life. And I looked at him and loyalty um, is a really important thing for me um, and being there when no one else is. Um, that's just what you do. Um, and so I looked at him and I said, no. You know, I'm not – I'll call you every day. I'll come home every weekend, and, um, you know, I'm not leaving. So – and I remember saying goodbye to him. I remember the day I said goodbye to him when I left for college. It was September – yeah, it was, it was in late September, like September 21st, 2nd, or 3rd. Uh, but I remember the, the experience. I remember he was standing in his – he was in his bathrobe. He hadn't showered in probably like two weeks, and he was in his bedroom – and I went upstairs, was wearing this hat, I was, and uh, and I remember uh, saying goodbye, and um, and I choked on the word goodbye. I couldn't I couldn't say the whole word, and I just cracked. And I probably intuitively knew that that was the last time I was actually going to see him. And you know, I gave him a hug. It was very hard to leave. Um, so I left and, uh, you know, went to Columbus, Ohio, a couple, three and a half hours away. And my mother dropped me off and I was in a really not great place. Um, and about two and a half weeks later, my, uh, you know, I was in a suite with, you know, there's different rooms and I was in a suite and uh, phone rings and my suite mate, James, uh, remember James Diaz, he picks up the phone and um, I can tell it's for me. And he won't give me the phone. And so I just, I knew, and he just would not give me the phone. And I, I took it at, at one point. I was like, give me the phone. And, you know, I, my mother was on the other line, and she was very emotional. And I said, pretty coldly, I said, is he gone? And she, you know, saying, yeah. And she's just, you know, crying. And I said, just come pick me up. Um, so I went home, and I went home that weekend. I buried him. I came back, I think I probably gained, I gained about 35, 40 pounds in about six weeks. I was, you know, really, really, I had so much, so much, you know, it was just very overwhelming. Well, that's how you self-soothe. You know, people eat, they drink, they exercise. We all have our own way of self-soothing, and a lot of times it's not all that healthy. Yeah, it, it definitely was not. Um, it, it was what it was. I didn't know how to cope. I didn't. I, I just, you know, I, I that same. You know, I've noticed that same 
addictive personality that he has. I, I've, gen, I've genetically looked at, you know, I've looked at I was going to ask you. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, yeah. children of alcoholics are always on guard or they, you know, they go ahead and just fall into it. It's a mess. It It can be, but so it's interesting because, so like my mother is, you know, she's a workaholic, but there's still that same tendency, right? My father, you know, there's, you know, he was a workaholic too, but he also dealt with this. My, 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 my grandfather, my father's father was a brilliant psychiatrist who probably slept three or four hours a night. That's kind of fallen into my pattern. Uh, and, you know, very similar. My, my great grandfather on my mother's side was a, you know, very brilliant chemist, um, who, uh, you know, invented the, the, the patent on the grenade and tear gas, very smart people, but I don't really care so much about that. Um, there is a, certainly there, there is a, there is a, a hunger that I think, um, was there genetically and it's whether you apply it do something that's either constructive or destructive, right? And so I've, I've always taken that same focus and really applied it to very constructive things or what probably at least are socially acceptable things. Uh, you know, I definitely had to be more conscious of balance and, and all of that stuff along the way. Um, but so there's a couple, you know, interesting sort of things because – I, you know, I ended up moving to New York. Uh, I ended up pursuing a career as an actor. First night I, I, I left and I was there for a year. I came out to Los Angeles. And, but in the middle of the financial crisis, I ended up raising millions of dollars initially to, to finance a film. And I, uh, you know, starred in it. And that led to later on raising hundreds of millions of dollars or putting hundreds of millions of dollars in deals together Um and, and that collapsing, and, and, and I had been in probably two major business partnership divorces by the time I was 27, 28, uh, and I met my wife and had a daughter, and then my son was born. And so there's a lot of different extreme environments going on, but the and, – and having the, the mental space to be able to deal with those things as they were unfolding. Um, but the, the interesting thing was going back to that experience with my father, saying goodbye to him and, and the conversations I had with him, is that in the middle of 2008, I was raising millions of dollars and, and you know, there's mortgages on real estate, margins on bond accounts, the stock market is collapsing, the real estate market had, had bottomed out and was dropping out. Um, it, it was a very extreme time. And I had gone into this, uh, started doing yoga classes and I remember that I was uh, one day I was doing this this sort of meditation. I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I I'm not super esoteric. You know, I I mean I I have an understanding of things, but I'm, you know, there's there's a certain science to this stuff that I think is a language that speaks to me. Um, you know, I think as a lawyer, too, I become very evidence-based, even though these things are a little bit different. <clears throat> but nevertheless, I was at the end of this class, and, and anyone who sort of knows what yoga is, um, at the end of a class after you've sort of done the workout, you know, it's supposed to be that you lay in this position called, you know, they call it shavasana, or they call it corpse pose, 
Um, and, and really, it's sort of marrying the, the Western philosophy and the Eastern philosophy. The Western philosophy is very much so push, push, push. And so the Eastern philosophy is that you've done the work. Now you need to actually, you know, let yourself receive something, right, and, and kind of replenish yourself. Um, and so I'm laying there, and, and they're playing this sort of gong meditation, and, and I'm, it's room is very dark. My eyes are closed. And I start to see these little tiny dots, um, these white dots, um, and I'm just sort of letting it, you know, my eyes are closed. You see things when your eyes are closed. You have different you do. images. You and do. Yeah. It's interesting. Just about when I'm ready to maybe fall asleep, I'm like you. Sleeping is not really yeah. in my wheelhouse. It's not something I do well. It's not a skill. And I will often, all of a sudden, I'm looking at the back of my eyelids, if you will, and I'm seeing some of the most fascinating things, and that's when I know I'm just about to go to sleep. Yeah. And I don't dare wake yeah. up and write yeah. it down because I need to go to sleep. I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, it is. Um, it's it, it's sleep is a very interesting thing, and and the, what the mind <clears throat> does, you know, consciously and and subconsciously, you know, when when you're sleeping, and 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 you know, I, I've also thought about, you know, how much deep sleep do I actually get? Um, although I think I get pretty good quality sleep. Um, uh, that's that's kind of a different thing, but. I, I remember laying there, and and as I'm seeing these dots, they start to look like uh, like stars, like little. I mean, you know, like like you're like if I were in space, if I was an astronaut in space or whatever. I, I'm you know whatever picture you want to sort of uh, imagine with that. Uh, but it, it felt, you know, it's just sort of what was coming to me at that time. And all of a sudden, I don't know if you if you ever seen the movie or if you recall the movie, like the first. Superman with Christopher Reeves, <clears throat> where his his father, the all of a sudden everything sort of started to form the father uh, the the uh, the shape of my father's face, and I very vividly could see my father's face, and I really felt this really weird. Thing. And this was about five, six years after he had passed, and I was going through a lot of trauma and constantly processing. I mean, 19 years later, I still, you know, it, it was still a pivotal moment in my life. And I, I cracked, and I, I cried, and I, I just, you know, I broke down. I felt like I, you know, I could feel, you know, some sort of presence with me or, or whatever you want to call it. And... I didn't know what to make of it. It just was what it was. But a couple of weeks later, um, same thing happens. And I'm laying there and I, same thing, same vision, same, you know, but very clear, very, you know, just kind of just processed a lot of stuff. And I'm just sort of just laying there. And this is just, you know, clearly what, what I'm, I'm experiencing, but, but, and I'm objective, but anyways, I see his face and I, I crack and I, you know, have that sort of therapeutic moment. And I had this epiphany, you and I were talking about this, and what that epiphany was, and this was in the middle of doing very huge business deals, um, I went back to those two conversations that he had with me, you know, what do you want to do? And 
when you leave, you're your going life to will change, like right. right? And and I remember telling him no, and then he passed away two and a half weeks later or so. And I and so that that realization was that he let go in order to let me live my life. Oh. And, and that was at that point, you know, the truth of that, I mean, it's, it's my own truth. It's my own, you know, observation. But the point of it is that at that point I lost all fear of anything, right? I, I truly lost fear of bankruptcy, losing, losing people in my life, um, anything. And not that I was looking for it, but my perspective was not that the pain that comes with life, I think people perceive pain differently. People think, people have this very unique, I've heard this, where like people will say like, if they're experiencing discomfort, they're going in the wrong direction. And I'm like, well, yeah. If, that's if just you're wrong. Not yeah, that yeah, is I, not I, right. Discomfort right. exists to make you say, hey, stop, there's a stop sign there. You might want to stop there, take a look left, right, before you barge into something. Yes, there's that, but then there's also like there's a distinction, right? There's a fine line. Like there is there is bad discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. There's like yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna slam up a car 120 miles an hour into a wall. Like let's not do that, right? Or whatever. But but if you're gonna say hey, you know I'm gonna make a calculated business move, and I know the risks, I've evaluated it, and either I make the choice or I don't, and I'm willing to take the loss. But what am I going to gain out of it? You know, what experience? What? What? I mean, the some of the experiences I think that you get from this have such an intrinsic value that you know you can't buy anywhere. You know, there's such a lesson to be learned from a lot of these things, and they make you so much sharper. You know, I think if you look at some of the best leaders, any good leader not only knows how to follow if someone else has a better idea. Right. And how to, you know, not have an ego or I mean, everyone's got an ego, but how to really look at it a little bit differently, but also how to embrace your failures and know that you've made mistakes. And if you're afraid to make a mistake, unfortunately, that's, you know, that's that's part of the reason why, you know, I couldn't, you know, I just wouldn't. I've had interviews with, you know, I remember having interviews with big firms and whatever when I transitioned to becoming a lawyer, and I had a resume, you know, negotiating $3 billion in deals and all of this stuff, and I was, I mean, no one was had those those sort of credentials, for lack of a better term, come, becoming a new lawyer, but I wouldn't necessarily get hired because they probably knew that they wouldn't be able to contain me or they wouldn't control yeah, me. Yeah, uh, I figured you're probably way over what they were willing to accept because they would say, hey, this guy already knows way more than we do. He's going to start bossing us around. Yeah, that or it's like, and I get it. I understand. It's like, you know, when you, you know, it's it's just how certain things work. And, and especially in law, you know, it's, there's a certain um, culture. I think it's changed, but there's certain cultural things. And, you know, they're looking for someone they're just going to put in a room. And, right. Um, do the work and all that stuff. And I wasn't that guy. I was like, no, no, I have, I have the relationships. I have my skill set. I have my experience. I have a lot to learn and, but I know how to do it. Meaning like I know how to learn. I, and that's really such a bit, I think, I think knowing how to learn is such a big part of life, you know, knowing how to seek out people 
who are mentors to you and how to engage them to include them in your process. Uh, and I would always be willing to take to bring on other people who I knew were incredible, you know, incredibly talented and knowledgeable and experienced, and I would bring them onto a case, and I would do all the work, but I would have them there because I knew that they could give me a, a look, hey, why don't you look at that? And I'd be like, okay, and then I'd go look at it, and then I'd, I'd figure it out from there, and I'd, I'd do all this stuff. So, you know, having mentors and, and guides along the way is... Mastermind, right. Listen, I do the same thing. Yeah. I'm an A-type personality. I'm I'm the oldest of a bunch of kids. I'm bossy. Just I'll just put it right out there. I always <laughs> have to be the one in charge. And that's not yeah. a good thing. And I finally learned that I have to, like you, I have to know my why, and then I have to ask. And I always ask people who are better at something than I am for advice, for guidance to work with me because I can't do it all on my own. And that took some doing. I had to have some go to yep. Jesus or come to Jesus talks with myself a lot because yep. I'm bossy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, that's, that's an interesting dynamic. I think, I think as entrepreneurs, I think, uh, you know, I'm a lawyer, but I'm still an entrepreneur, right? Um, uh, we, you know, that's been my mindset. I, that's, you know, I, it, you know, that sounds cliche, but it, it, I think every, every, you know, good entrepreneur has probably read or heard, certainly heard of good, uh, you know, rich dad, poor dad at this point. Oh, in yeah. life. Absolutely. But, but there was, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I think, I, I think my mother gave that to me like when I was leaving for college or something like that. And I realized I was like, I've kind of, you know, it, it was funny because I remember reading things like that and hearing things like that and people would get really enamored like oh it's you know almost like it's just like this amazing piece of information and, and it is but for me it was actually like oh it seemed like common sense um exactly and sharon Lecter is yeah. one of the people who was part of that she's been on this this program a couple of times but yeah, yeah, I read yeah. these things, but I don't take them as gospel. I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense. Let me see where I can work that into how my mindset works. But I never take it mm -hmm. as gospel. Absolutely. And um, the there was a conversation I had with uh, there was a conversation I had with um, again, this is a, a colleague of mine last night, and I was I was saying that you know we were talking about. You know, I, I, you know, had, you know, I, I've done what I've done, uh, and sort of continue to do that, um, you know, in the entertainment space and and whatnot. I've worked, you know, I've, I've worked on huge, huge deals and, and and cases, and but I've never, you know, I've never gone into a room, or I don't, I don't go into rooms ever. I never hold anyone on a pedestal. I don't go into a room believing like, wow, I'm enamored by who you are. And I don't mean that with disrespect. I fully respect when someone's accomplished what they've accomplished. I actually respect it tremendously. I'm curious. I'm interested in what they've done. But I don't look at it as though somehow someone is above me or anything like that. Um, and I think there's an important distinction there. I think, you know, we live in such a world where there's like people who 
I have to say this. I was doing so I, when I was like 27. I put together about 600 million dollars, actually a little bit more than that, in financing deals with major studios. I had every major, you know, uh, film in Hollywood basically coming through my company, and I would go into. I remember I was I had a 200 million dollar deal I was negotiating with a company called Relativity Media at the time, and I remember I walked into a, you know a meeting in their boardroom and they had this huge sizzle reel that they put together all their major films that this movie Immortals was a big hit for them. They had started off by um, relativity had done sort of what I was doing at the time where they started these huge slate financing deals. Ryan Covenant, who <clears throat> was behind the company at the time and the company ended up going bankrupt twice. Um, and my deal really proceeded right before that happened. Um, but he had started by actually, he raised about half a billion dollars. So 500 million for Marvel initially in 2005, because Marvel had been sort of a, a, a company that sold its IP rights to Sony or Fox for you know X-Men or Spider-Man. They would license it out. They had their deal. So this was their ability to you know, go off and make and produce and finance their own films, which they did. The first one was obviously Iron Man, and that was kind of a hit. You know, the, the history, you know, the, the rest is sort of history, as they said. Now, I've seen that one. Uh, I'm not a movie person at all. Give me a stack of books. I'm happy. But I have seen Iron yeah. Man, so yeah. yay me. Yeah. <laughs> well, books are better. I mean, books really are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, unless there, there's, you know, there's good, look, there are good films, and there are, there are good books. I, I think the quality is lacking for sure, and, and a lot of stuff these days. But, yeah, a good book is, you know, as a lawyer, I read all day. Um, Me too, but I'm not a lawyer, but I read all the time. When I was a kid, I would read yeah. the back of cereal boxes. I hate cereal, but it was there. It had print <laughs> on it. I could read it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just like, you know, it's like working that, it's working that muscle. It's working a, you know, it's thinking and, and thinking – I remember watching a a video of a, a, a colleague of mine, and, and he was out on the water, and he was saying, you know, and this is so true. And I used to do this as an entrepreneur. I would get in my car and drive and make calls. And I would just drive and change the scenery and just drive, right? I couldn't stay in an office. I couldn't stay in a room. I had to, wa- I had to walk. I had to change my scenery. I had to drive and all that stuff. But he was saying, and this is such a big part of the work, it's understanding how to work. So much of his time, he would say every single day, he would come and just think, right? And, again, common sense, but – and people talk about it, but they don't really do it. Taking the time to think and visualize. It's a practice. It, it really is. Yeah. I have yeah. a vision board. I'm constantly – and I will take time – and I call it my open refrigerator door syndrome meditation because I have a monkey brain. I can't meditate. And I will get up from my office, go to my refrigerator, stick my upper body in the refrigerator, and go completely blank. Nobody knows why they opened that door. You're just blank. And once I've had that little mini meditation, then I will take myself outside because I have this gorgeous backyard. And I will go outside and I will sit underneath my pecan trees or stand under them or whatever, walk with the dog and deliberately think. And I will, it's like I can almost see in my head, I'm going to think about this. And I give myself a title, a topic that I'm going to think about. And I don't come back in until I've thought about it, plotted something out and can write it down. 
You know, it, what's interesting is that the reason why, you know, you, you, you enjoy what you do is because what you're talking about is it's very creative. Yes, yes right? it's very it, mindful, it, but it has to be a deliberate yeah. practice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it does. It's, uh, it's not something that you have to take action. You have to do something about it. You have to, you know, I, I was at a place, um, you know, I had, you know, kids, my, I have a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and that's also been an interesting learning process, becoming a parent, uh, for sure, <clears throat> patience and, and all of those, uh, you know, unique things that sort of come with that whole bag. Um, but I was, especially when I was a little bit younger in my, in my 20s, and I was, you know, building everything I was building, I, I made a constant, um, you know, effort and, and commitment to every single day, I had to do something that was very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable. Um, because I, I, my feeling was that the only way I could grow is if I did that. And, and I think that, that that's common sense, too. I mean, you can even think about it when people are physical and they work out. You know, you, you can go in and if you're into working out, you can go and do the same workout every day, and you're going to what they call plateau. You know, you're going to – there's no growth. You have to change it up. You have to shock your system. You know, and, and also I remember – I think it was Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, – I think it was his documentary from the 70s. It was either his, his book, The Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding, or or the documentary. But he would talk about how he would stack so much weight when he would do, a, when he would do squats or anything like that that he would literally pass out. He would Ow. just, you know, pass out. Pass- for, you know, five minutes or whatever, and then he'd wake up. But he was willing to pass out. You know, oh, that's such the difference. Okay, so he he knew it could happen. It probably would happen, but he was willing to take that chance to get wherever he needed to be. Yeah, and you, you have to know that in order to grow, in order to become stronger, in order to legitimately become stronger – you have to continue raising the bar. You have to continue to, you know, challenge yourself. And I don't just mean we can talk better all day. We got to do it. You got to really do it. You know, and um, you can live a very purposeful, amazing, incredible life and a very uncomfortable life and deal with a lot of painful stuff, but it's really worth it because you're doing it your way. You know, um, when you when you take action so exactly and jordan i have to tell you i've been scribbling notes while you're talking but here's the thing i've listened to you well and the pre-interview which again was fascinating i seriously am going to start recording those because the tidbits and the, the nuggets that come out of those really needs to be translated into the the actual interview as well but here's the thing in the the times that I've spoken with you and listening to your story about your dad and your mom, who sounds phenomenal, and raising my eyebrows going, my God, how did he turn out as well as he did? But here's the thing. What I'm taking away from all of this is that someone's life is never what it appears to be, ever. There's drama. There's trauma. There's just, oh, my God, what the hell was that? Moments and days and, oh, I don't know if I'm going to survive this. We all do. And, I mean, you've put these these wonderful projects together. You're an attorney. You're working with your litigator. 
nobody would guess, I would think, looking at you or listening to you or working with you, you know, as their attorney, that you had all of this in your life. And here's what I really want to say, Jordan, is that when we're talking, listening, learning to other people, we need to be mindful about all their chaos and all their trauma because we don't know what it is. So how about we stop Mm -hmm. being nasty online and to other people just because we think we can get by with it. We don't know who they are, what they're doing, or why they are what they are now. That's, yeah, that, that's a whole nother, uh, first of all, yes. I mean, that, that's the realization, and that's actually where I, where I live at. I have no expectation that any, I actually get very frustrated when people start talking about how someone else's life is so amazing or this. Right. Or I'm like, that's, that's horse, that's just crap. That's like not, you, you, that's just nonsense. Like, that's a fairy tale, and I actually blame society on that. I blame, like, five-year-olds who have read fairy tale books, you know, that, you know, there's some sort of expectation that Prince Charming's going to come and, and you're going to live in a, a castle or that, if you know, you're, you're just magically going to hit some level or, or whatever without doing the work. That's just not that's, – that's a lie. That's a complete fabrication. It's total propaganda. It's not real. And people get really dissatisfied with life when they've been built into that expectation. And, you know, the other thing about, you know, the online stuff, I mean, yeah, I have huge problems with that um, because – it, it takes no courage whatsoever to stand behind a computer screen and to yell. Um, not, yep. Not. And, you know, if you, wanna, if you want to sit down with someone and understand what they're going through with no judgment, great. You know, sometimes people make bad decisions. Sometimes make people make difficult positions there, or decisions. There's a lot of, you know, life is certainly not that simple. There's a lot of bad stuff out there. There's a lot of people who have a lot of interesting personalities that, you know, and there's a lot of power and a lot of money and all kinds of things that, that come into play. So by all means, you know, it's not like everyone's just wonderful, but you know, there's a story and there's a purpose and there's a justification for everyone's actions. Um, and more importantly, you know, if you have something to say, you know, you're certainly welcome to say it to their face. I think that that's, you know, I I've gotten to a point in my life where being candid is, the only way that I can sensibly live life. I, I don't really care what, I don't care what someone thinks about me. Uh, it takes way too much time and, and too much and energy. You, well, you don't know what they think about you. One of my very early episodes, I've been doing this from 13, almost 14 years. One of my very yeah. early yeah. Um, guests was Larry Wingett. And Larry Wingett is, you know, he's written six New York Times bestsellers. He's known as Pitbull of personal development. And let me tell you something about Larry. We've become pretty good friends. He doesn't have any filters, and neither do I. And one of the very first things he said to me was, and this was a book that he had read, What You Think of Me is None of My Business. And I went, oh, he just in one sentence, one title of a book, let me figure out what my whole life has been about. I honestly don't care yep. what people yep. think of me. It's not my concern. For starters, they yep. may have a, a thought at one moment and then, you know, keep on reading or keep on listening or actually meet me and go, oh, I kind of like you. Well, good for you. Mm-hmm. I really don't care. And I don't mean that to be ugly or pejorative. It's just yeah. it's yeah. not my concern. I'm not in charge of what you think. So yeah. I just keep on moving. And I think that's, that's what you're saying as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, I mean, 
I'm not going to, I mean, look, I, I've had my moments. It's not like I, I, when I'm saying I don't care what someone thinks, like I don't, but I'm mindful and we struggle with it. I think we all, I think we all as professionals, um, you know, and that's what I was talking about earlier, like getting attached to things like, you know, when you build reputation and when you do this, you know, I mean, there are certain realities of how that's important. You always want to do a good job. You always want to be known for being a hardworking person or for trying to do the right thing and all that stuff. But I think the problem is, is that you realize it's just impossible to make everyone happy. And, and I think when you get to a place where you realize that if someone thinks something negatively about you, it, it, that's just what it is, trying to do all of this stuff to change that is a lost cause. You know, they will oh, I don't bother. Yeah, there's nothing you can do. Jordan, this has been a fascinating hour, and we are actually out of time. We're still recording, although the streaming has stopped, but anybody who wants to hear the rest of this can download and listen later. So before I let you go, where can people find you, and when will your book be published? So I appreciate you asking. So um, I'm an attorney, and our our website is uh, www.wg as in Gregory, F as in Frank, council.com, uh, but their firm is Weinberg, Gonzer, Frost. We're in uh, Los Angeles, California. And, uh, you know, mostly handle, you know, pretty high-level business and entertainment litigation, um, you know, we also do a lot of other, you know, major stuff in the business world on, on the transactional side as well. Um, but, you know, we have a really great team that we've put together and some really great people. Um, so that's, you know, sort of a, a basic idea of sort of where we're, where we are at. And the book uh, comes out, it's uh, comes out October 9th of 2022. So this year, some like five, six months, uh, I guess six months or so it's actually, um, uh, it got, I delayed it uh, unintentionally at first, sort of work-related and schedule, but it is, uh, it, I realized it is, um, I, I scheduled it because it's uh, the, actually the 19th anniversary of my father's passing when I was 19. Right. So I caught that. Right. When you started to say that, yeah. I, I realized yeah. why you had done that. Yep. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, personal meaning in terms of the overall journey uh, since his passing for, for me. And it's, uh, you know, it's, if it's an honor of him, it's an honor of my mother an honor of, uh, I mean, she's still alive, but, um, it's, it's, it's certainly a, uh, a homage or what, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's certainly with that whole process in mind and with, with a lot of the people who have, um, been incredible inspirations and, and, and mentors in my life. Um, uh, it's, it's that they're a big part of that whole process. So, uh, it's definitely about the message. It's not, you know, about intended to be about me, but it's it's really about a process and understanding that process. But that's when it comes out. And see, I think that's important that we can take a look, and many of us do. I mean, we all have our our moments where we just decide to wallow. I do. Every once in a while, I'll just say, you know what? I don't feel like doing a darn thing. I'm going to wallow. And I can only manage yep. that for about 30 minutes before I start laughing at myself because I'm, I'm being ridiculous. Yeah. But you can either fall into what your history is or you can be mindful and do something, create a purposeful life. And that's, I think, what your message here today is. So, Jordan, thank you. It has been wonderful speaking with you. And as soon as I get that book, I'll be in touch with you and, and of course, Devin. 
and we may set up another, you know, time to chat. It'll depend on what I see in the book and what, you know, where yep. I think you can come back and share, but it'll be a, a little bit. So anyway, thank you. I really appreciate you spending time with us and sharing some very difficult stories. We all have them. Some of us can talk about them. Some of us don't want to, but thank you for sharing those stories. And before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in iTunes and, well, it's Apple Podcasts now. And honestly, anywhere else you consume your business podcasts, just look for your partner in Success Radio and take us along on your success journey. Jordan, again, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 